welcome to Decision Space, the only podcast that takes place between the turns of your favorite game. I'm Jake. And I'm Brendan. And this week we're talking about Keyforge. Let's go. <laughs> ah, so excited for this one. <laughs> oh yeah, dude. This should be a very fun episode. I know it's a game that we both have a bunch of thoughts on um, and I just am excited to hopefully uh, help people to think about this game a little bit differently. Yeah, very much the same. We've It, it will be interesting, too, because, uh, Jake, obviously you started a Keyforge-focused podcast, Sanctimonious, spent a ton of time playing it, and now Keyforge came out originally in 2018, so I feel like we have a little bit of... Um, we'll be able to look back a little bit more than maybe having this conversation in last year or the year before, even. Totally. Yeah. So it'll be a great conversation. Uh, But before we do that, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, Next week will be a discussion-based episode, I believe, to be determined. Um, And so get get ready for that. Uh, Nothing to pre-plan for. Uh, And then following that, we'll have two new game episodes. And both of those are undetermined. So if you have thoughts on what you'd like us to talk about, uh, feel free to pop into our Discord. The link is in the description and, and give us some recommendations. I know we have some we've been kicking around, uh, Grand Austrian Hotel, Carcassonne, uh, some, some others as well. So those are ones that might be coming soon, but we're definitely open to your suggestions. Before we get into our ratings and slogans this week, let's do a very short uh, what's on our mind segment to... No, where is my mind segment? <laughs> Dang it! <laughs> is my mind segment to to let the people know just just what we've been thinking about this week. I want to know. So, what what is on your mind, Jake? No, yeah. where is your mind? <laughs> Why have we done this? <laughs> All right. Well, I wanted to put this on the onset because I got some really good feedback from a friend who had been listening to the podcast, and she said, Jake. When I listen to the podcast, you're so careful in the way you speak with so many caveats that I forget that you're really good at games. And I just thought that was really good feedback because, you know, not that it's super important to me that everyone respects my ability to play games, but I think I can do a little bit more to just put my opinions out there without so much caveats. Obviously, everybody listening to this podcast knows that anything I say is an opinion already. That was a caveat. (laughs) So what I'm doing is I'm just saying I'm getting the caveat out of the way now for this and future episodes. Everything I say is an opinion, but moving forward, I'm going to try and just state that uh, as opposed to dancing around so much. Um, because, you know, I do, I do know what I'm talking about to some extent, and I think I should just have a little bit more confidence in this podcast. So I really, Aurora, I really appreciate the feedback. I took it to take it to heart and I'm going to try and uh, do a little bit better about that. You know, just talk my shit. I just want to talk my shit, dude. Can I talk my shit? Please. I really appreciated that casual flex also. (laughs) (laughs) I promise you any, anyone who plays games with me in real life is never like, Jake, you're so modest. <laughs> That's I, I think anyone who plays games with you online has that that sense as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I think I will be try to be better about not caveating my opinions and thoughts as well. 
um, I'm decent at games. I don't know if I'm quite at the illustrious level of of Jake Freed in terms of my Euro game <laughs> abilities, but um, I wh- where's my mind this week? My mind's still in Arnak. You know, my heart's with the Crucible, but my mind it, it's still it's still stuck in those temples. I don't know what it is about that game, Jake. But you I can't. Never, I can't you stop never playing made it. it out of those caves last week. <laughs> I'm still in there using my pickaxe, <laughs> working away you. at the point totals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got the uh, the <laughs> addict trophy on board game arena this week so i played officially over 50 games now uh this morning i woke up early at 5 a.m i think because i was thinking about arnak played a game broke 100 points for the first time i feel like where's my mind might just for the next few weeks be arnak updates and if that's the case listener i apologize but try it out it's a great game Uh, yeah i i still have been enjoying that as well and um it's one of those games, right, where a lot of times on this podcast we'll cover a game and, you know, that's really fantastic. And then I'll be done with it for a little yeah. while because of playing it so much. And I'm still excited to keep playing Arnak with people on the Discord and just on online. Uh, it's so easy and fun to play. So I'm right there with you. Well, I'm not at 50 games. I'm at more like <laughs> seven or eight. But <laughs> to each their own. <laughs> Okay, well, without any further ado, let's jump right into our ratings and slogans for Keyforge. Brendan, will you do the honors and start us off? If Magic the Gathering is the Professor Dumbledore of dueling card games, then Keyforge is the Mad-Eye Moody. Every bit as innovative, fun, and bombastic as it is incisive and clean in its design, Keyforge is a modern dueling game triumph in which Richard Garfield proves again his giant shoulders will be stood upon for ages to come. 9.5 out of 10. That's amazing. Richard Garfield standing on his own shoulders. How does he do it? (laughs) He's a wizard. I don't know. (laughs) He's a wizard. That's right. The only explanation. Uh, Okay. And mine is Keyforge. What else is there to say about it? But that it is the game that I wished existed when I was a kid playing Magic the Gathering. I'm so happy it exists now. If you're a kid today playing the Keyforge, I, I envy you uh, because it's just so cool, so fun, uh, and a great game to boot. I'm giving it a 9.7 out of 10. What? You had to outdo yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly, I was wavering. I was like, I'm either going to give it a 9.5 or a 9.7. And uh, and then you gave it 9.5. So I was like, you know what? Got to bump it. <laughs> <laughs> uh you know that's that's what it's rated on my uh, bgg collection page right now so i'm sticking with i think it's a, a fantastic game and really a modern classic for a number of reasons so let's head right into our game breakdown uh that brendan so generously provides uh, and then we'll get into the discussion of keyforge's decision space Keyforge is a dueling card game in which there's no deck building. Instead, Keyforge is played with algorithmically generated 36 card decks made up of a completely unique combination of cards. Each deck in the world is the only one exactly like it. Fundamentally, Keyforge is a racing game. Players strive to be the first to forge three keys, and the moment a player accomplishes this goal, they win the game. Keys are made up of amber, and if a player has six amber at the start of their turn, they'll forge a key. 
To acquire Amber, players play action cards, creature cards, artifact cards, and enhancement cards from their hand, some of which will earn the player Amber on play, or assist the player or in acquiring Amber in the future, or inversely, these cards will also slow their opponent's pursuit of Amber. Creatures in Keyforge persist on the board and can be used to fight with the opponent's creatures, but more importantly, they can also be used to reap, an action that gains the player an Amber and exhausts the creature for the turn. Importantly, each deck in Keyforge is comprised of three houses out of a pool of seven houses in any given set. And each of these houses has a unique feel and brings something different and special to a deck. On a player's turn, they'll declare a house, and then they may freely play or discard any cards from their hand of that house and utilize any cards of that house on their board. At the end of each player's turn, they'll draw back up to six cards, meaning the more cards played or discarded of a house on a given turn, the more cards a player will potentially draw at the end. This system stands in for a traditional energy system in dueling style card games and brings a myriad of emergent gameplay consequences to the decision space. Thank you so much for that incredible rules overview for Keyforge. Hopefully that gives folks a little bit of an idea about how this game is played. Uh, let's jump right in to our game breakdown and so start this conversation about the decision space in Keyforge that we are known for here on the Decision Space podcast. Awesome. So Keyforge, a bit of background, is designed by Richard Garfield, of course, the designer of Magic the Gathering, King of Tokyo, and many other incredible games. I think it's also important to mention the development team of Keyforge, just because the game has grown and continued to grow beyond Richard Garfield's uh, very loving game womb. Um, so development <laughs> by Brad Andres, Scaff Elias, Nate French, and Danny Schaefer. All those people, I think, impacting the game at different points in the game li game's life. Scaff Elias actually wrote the characteristics of games with Richard Garfield and has worked with him on games for a long time, going back to Magic the Gathering, and it was published in 2018. It's also a unique deck game. What's a unique de deck game, Jake? A unique deck game is a game in which like so many other CCGs, you get a random pack of cards uh, in this game. But rather than just being cards that can be used to create a deck later, each pack of cards in Keyforge is a unique deck unto itself. It has its own name. It has its own custom art for a card back. And importantly, you are not allowed to change any of those cards from that deck you've opened out for another because it has its deck list there. So whether you're playing casually with friends or on or in a tournament, uh, you are intended to use one deck and one deck only uh, that you've opened. And one really cool thing about the deck, like Jake mentioned, there is a deck list. So when you open any deck in the game of Keyforge, it comes sealed. It contains all 36 cards in the deck and then a list with a QR code. So you can scan that QR code and it uploads it to a website and it sort of each deck lives on beyond just the physical cards that you get in the pack. There's a way to know that this deck is this deck. It has a unique name. I think Jake mentioned that and printed on every card is also the unique name. So you really do feel like when you're holding a Keyforge deck, you, you feel the weight of the fact that it's the only version of that deck to have ever existed. Yeah. And just to put a finer point on it, there will be no other deck that shares that same combination of cards. While there are common, uncommon, and rare cards that show up in varying uh, 
quantities across all decks. You'll you you know you'll have a lot of DNA with similar deck share a lot of DNA with similar decks out there. There will be no other deck that has the exact same uh, list of cards as the one that you've just opened. And if you're thinking, oh well, maybe they that that's all fine and good, but I bet there's lots of decks that feel the same. There's so many cards in each set design that when I started playing Keyforge, I thought, okay, but like I'll be able to find decks kind of similar to this one, and you can find decks kind of similar. But every deck in Keyforge, once you get in and really play it, does sort of feel unique. And even if you search hard, sometimes it can be hard to find a deck that could be a more competitive replacement for the sort of identity that each deck takes on. But Jake, you. We are hosting this episode this week, but I found in the rulebook, I think a really great overview of what Richard Garfield was thinking words from himself from the call of the archons, the first keys forge set. Uh, that's a little essay that I've excerpted. Can I read some of this? Yes. Uh, cue the library music. Okay. <laughs> Ooh, it sounds so good in here. So <laughs> I view this little essay as really Richard Garfield's, what is the promise of Keyforge? What is it trying to do? Why did it come into existence? So this is Richard Garfield's words. In the early days of trading card games, they were played in many ways. And some of my favorite ways disappeared over time. I've often wondered if I could get back some of that really exciting play, which was characterized by tools that weren't universal. Each player had treasures no other player had, but also had less powerful cards that needed to be used in clever ways to get the most value. While I enjoy constructing or drafting decks, I am often longing to play cards that are not powerful enough to compete within these formats. I find special pleasure in winning a game using cards that many people ignored or overlooked. I have always been attached to good procedurally generated content. Game worlds generated in this way feel as if they belong to me, the player. I'm discovering them as I play. The designer didn't even know they existed. Often games without such content are extremely managed experiences. Everyone goes through the same storylines and can experience the same gameplay by making the same decisions. Everything they experience feels planned. The contrast to me feels like the difference between exploring a jungle and walking in an amusement park. When trading card games first came out, the feeling was like exploring a jungle. And the cards became more like commodities. It became more and more like an amusement park. As, excuse me. And as the cards became more like commodities, it became more and more like an amusement park. In the amusement park, there are experts telling you how to play the game, the safest strategies, what net decks to use, in the jungle, you have the tools you have. There's every chance that you're going to be the best in the world at playing your decks. You can't just look up what the synergies are or the weaknesses. You will only find out by playing. Welcome to the jungle. Nice. That's sweet. I got a little bit of goosebumps there. Uh, and, you know, I think that speaks very highly to the promise of this game and to what I was talking about at the very beginning about the game that I wanted to exist when yeah. I was a kid, you know, um, whether whether it's it's almost akin to like the Yu-Gi-Oh uh, anime show, right? Where all the people have all the characters have their own sort of signature decks. Yeah. But then when you sit down to play in a Yu-Gi-Oh tournament or or a Magic tournament or whatever, right? It's the same decks over and over, the same list, maybe a card off or two, just to give it a slight wrinkle. But in general, if you're not playing the deck that most recently won the big online tournament or the deck that just happened four hours ago in Japan when you woke up, like you're behind the curve. And yeah. here, you know, there 
you know, in the competitive world of Keyforge, there are known players and there are also known decks that shift hands and have have stories all onto themselves. And I think, you know, that's something that happens at the highest level, but it's also something that can happen so easily within a small group of friends playing with a, a small collection of Keyforge decks. Um, and, you know, I think in in many ways that essay speaks of like, it's very ambitious, but I think Keyforge does a relatively good job of approaching kind of those ideals, which is saying a lot. Yeah, it's really, you know, sort of the person who laid the foundation for this entire genre of games coming back and saying, okay, I'm going to fix all the things I dislike about my game, uh, the sort of game format I've created. And I think what's amazing is that Richard Garfield did it. He really did address so many of the problems and he didn't just address so many of the problems. He created a new, a new game. It's hard to overstate how fresh Keyforge feels in a lot of its approaches, the way it lets you play cards. And we're going to get into it more. I'm just so excited. But I think that as we sort of go through this conversation, I hope you as a listener will think through this promise of Richard Garfield and Keyforge. And if you think it holds up and maybe we'll get back to that at the very end of the podcast. That sounds great. So, once it, the last thing before we get into the actual nitty gritty of the <laughs> mechanics here, let's let's share just a little bit about our personal histories with this game because it is one that is going to color our you know uh, evaluation of this game and, and this discussion in a way that is different from other games that we're just experiencing for the first time or you know have a limited experience with. Why don't you go first, Jake? Okay, so I first. When I when I heard the pitch for Keyforge that it was this unique game, I was the target audience, right? I've a col- uh, hardcore collectible card game player in my youth that had drifted away from it for all of the reasons that Richard Garfield is seeking to address with this game, right? Just got tired of net decking. I couldn't afford to play in in many of the formats I wanted to, or or even like the decks that I would play with. I, I think I even talked on. Uh, in our Magic the Gathering episode, I was very felt very restricted in in wanting to compete. But as a kid, you know, without a job, uh, not able to do so in, in in a full way, right? I could only play like the red decks, <laughs> aggressive strategies, uh, and I mean, I had a lot of fun with that. But you know, over time, I realized like, okay, this is a game that is just so contingent upon dumping tons and tons of money into it that I just drifted away primarily for that reason. So when I heard the pitch for Keyforge, I was hooked. I, you know, remember talking to friends and I decided to go to the very first pre-release event of Coda a couple weeks before launch. I played it. uh, I got my starter deck, played a couple games with a friend and we both walked away kind of scratching our head like, huh, like that was cool. I don't know if it's that amazing. Seems, you know, pretty simple. But something about, you know, probably because I was like so predisposed to want to like it, I kind of I stuck with it. And what I did was over the next couple of weeks, I just kind of played those two decks I had against each other. And I grew more and more like just gold fishing, like playing by myself, right? Playing two handed on my table, on my desk. Uh, and I grew more and more intrigued with it because the deck that I thought should win the matchup lost like over and over and over mm. again, the deck that I thought should win lost. And that made me realize like there's more to this 
So I decided to go to the launch event sealed tournament. I maybe won it or did well and had a, had a total blast playing. And and then and then I kind of realized that like there is a lot more to this game than meets the surface. So I wrote a couple of tips articles for for people just to help them get their feet wet the game called Keyforge Tips. And those articles really blew up, became really popular, uh, shared all, all around the Keyforge community. And uh, kind of using that as an impetus, realizing, wow, like what a cool experience. People are really valuing what I have to say about this game. Decided to uh, create my own podcast with a, a friend, uh, Dan Johnson, who had a little bit of podcasting experience. That was my first foray into podcasting. We created the show Sanctimonious, did about 50 episodes. I think we hit like 50,000 downloads. Um, it, you know, it was a ton of fun. Ultimately, we were sort of on extended hiatus still. It's something I hope maybe to return to one day as like competitive events resume, but without organized play over the pandemic, it was just became untenable for me to to keep keep going week after week when without new kind of content to talk about. Um, yeah, I've also played in a several high level tournaments. I got fourth place at one of the vault tours, which was really exciting and validating for me and kind of the show that we were doing. Um, I've been a, more or less away from the game for this past year, but diving back in with the brand new set release, Dark Tidings, uh, and I've been having a lot of fun with it so far, uh, kind of coming back in. So that's a whole lot. It's, it's kind of a robust history with the game, but that gives some context for where I'm coming from. No, that's that's awesome, Jake. And I knew, obviously, all of that. And I'm actually excited to talk to you about the deck that you did as well as you did at the Vault Tour, because I'm curious, Nimrod, I want to know what your thoughts are. But we're going back to it later, uh, sort of as that deck has you sat with it. But my history with Keyforge, so I, if you listen to the Magic the Gathering episode that we did a couple, I guess, a months ago at this point, wow, decision space getting old here. We're like in our teenage years. Um, I, you know that I had a pretty similar competitive background to Jake, though played a little bit more casually, I would say. Uh, played mostly Magic the Gathering in middle school and really loved it. Uh, I also, I, I just loved sort of collectible card games, trading card games, all of the things that Magic the Gathering spawned and I think became very enamored with them as a kid, then walked away from them a little bit as I, I in high school and early college. And I think I always had a very obsessive part of my personality that sort of knew if I went in, I was going to go all in. And I was nervous about what going all in would mean. So I sort of stayed away, even though I had this interest. I would always sort of like peek in and sort of look through the window at like what was happening in Magic the Gathering. Um, because I think the game design is very interesting. And then when I heard about Keyforge coming out, I was incredibly excited. It should be no secret to you if you listen to this podcast that I'm a huge fan of Richard Garfield's work. I think he's one of the most preeminent thinkers about games of the last 50 years, um, maybe ever. I think he just like is an incredible thinker and uh, about games. So I'm always interested in whatever work that he does. And I was really interested in Keyforge and it spawned this internal conflict of do I do I look beyond looking through the window? 
And I, I went back and forth a ton. I decided not to pre-order Call of the Archons. I really wanted to. I was like, oh, I won't have anyone to play with. This wouldn't be a good use of my money. I'll just look at it and think wistfully about how badly. And then my friend and I ended up going to PAX Unplugged that year in 2018, right when Call of the Archons, the first set released. And we were walking around and, I, you know, we played... Um, we were playing some demo games. We played Condottieri. We played um, a, a variety of other games. And then eventually I was like, you know, Spencer, my friend, what if we just bought, we'll just buy two decks of Keyforge. We'll just try it out. So, and they were like, yeah, that, that sounds great. So we bought two decks, read through the rules, got a sense, sat down and played, started playing. And I think we were, you know, on key, in Keyforge, you played the three keys. We were at about key one and uh, maybe we had a pile of amber on top of that. And I just stood up and I was like, I have to go buy more. We need more decks. This is too good. Um, and ran back to the booth where we bought it. It was kind of hard to find. And I was like, do you have more? Do you have more Keyforge for me? And she was like, um... Um, and then pulled like th three more packs out. And I was like, okay, but like, I know you have a little more. Do you have like maybe like six decks for me? So that I have <laughs> bought six decks. We were on seven decks and we sort of cracked those, played a bunch. Packs that year basically turned into only playing Railroad Inc. and Keyforge. Then the next day, though we didn't plan on it, I entered a Keyforge tournament that morning, just like a pre-release one downstairs in the organized playroom, did pretty well and had a great experience, except for one opponent who was, I like, I thought we were playing a fun, casual, we were learning to play game. So I was giving, letting him take back lots of options. And then I made a decision was like, oh, wait, actually. And he was like, no, you already declared that. And I was like, ooh, this is the part of the, this is the part of this that I don't like and wasn't looking forward to. Continued with the game, obviously got very into it and bought a bunch more decks. Got into the competitive side of things by listening to Jake and Dan's podcast, Sanctimonious, and sort of participated in the community there and came to really love just exploring the game um, and the systems. I attended one vault tour, did okay. I went four and two. I missed Top Cut uh, and Sealed by one game, which I was bummed about. I didn't play the deck as well as I could have, I think. I think I really probably should have ended up making Top Cut, but it was an awesome experience. And then since the pandemic, have sort of Played some, but not quite as much. I think I've fallen a little bit out of love with the primary way in which competitive players play the game, which is Archon format. Um, it's really like the top 0.00001% of decks that you're trying to get down on the table. Um, and I think it, in some ways, doesn't accurately reflect the spirit of Keyforge. Though I still love like taking my best decks and slinging them against the best that I can find online. Yeah. Well, there is a lot to unpack in there. And thank you for sharing your history of the game, Brendan. Uh, I think we'll touch on some of that later. But let's actually talk about the game. <laughs> <laughs> so Keyforge, in terms of its decision space, I think Keyforge is a fascinating trading card game because there's no energy system in the same way that there are in so many of the other games like Magic or Hearthstone or Pokemon, it doesn't use a traditional energy system. Instead, like we talked about in, in the rules overview, there's three houses in every deck. And on each turn, you declare a house and then you play any cards in your hand of that house and use any cards of that house on the table. So it means that at the outset, you're going to have like a fair amount of decisions to make. Obviously, the board will build up as you go. But Keyforge, one of its characteristics is having these really powerful uh, state changing actions that can completely upend the, the game state. So I think Keyforge is really sort of this like waxing also, but very dynamically waxing decision space. What do you think, Jake? 
Yeah, I, I think I would I'd agree with that. I think um, dynamic is probably the overarching theme, right? Yeah. Uh, in in I, when when you think about the structure of the game, right? You're playing to three keys. You're building up amber, then going back down. Uh, board states changing. Uh, you know, it's it over the course of the game. Right, you're going to have more things to interact with on the board than at the start. So I think there is some element of waxing, but it's probably a very fine kind of line. And and because of how how much craziness there is in in a game of Keyforge, maybe this is something with collectible sort of style card game dueling card games in general. Games can take all sorts of different structures based yeah. on the variety of effects. It's totally possible uh, based on some really powerful game warping artifacts out there that you could play a game that almost just wanes from the first turn on. Yeah, sure. And th- one of the great things about Keyforge too is that because of the unique nature of the decks, you might be in a matchup where the game just consistently takes a really different shape uh, because of there's really powerful effects in Keyforge that you really have to plan your play around. I think you're right, Jake. If if we were going to throw it completely in a bucket, it's just a dynamic game. Yeah. Would you say the decision space? How how would you characterize like the size of the decision space? It's a really interesting question. I think that the side, the perceived decision space when you first start playing the game doesn't feel huge. Um, there's a really good competitive podcast that I listen to called uh, Bouncing Death Cork that I think a lot of the early competitive players sort of got into. And they had this idea of the delta. So you look at your hand, how many cards do you have in your hand of any given house? You add that to how many cards that you could use on the board if you call that. Oh, I'll just do whatever is the most. I'll use the most cards in my hand, the most cards on the board, and make that decision. And I think that's a good base level heuristic but once you start to think through how many cards remain in your deck of certain houses i think the decision space can really grow but i don't think it ever gets to be tr- uh, i don't know sometimes the board state can get pretty out of control too i think it's it's medium to large it, it's bigger than it feels like it is sometimes what do you think jake i think it's uh small to medium interesting just, just because of how structured your decisions are and we'll talk about uh the the house system but you're always picking between one of three houses so that's really limiting Mm, like the possible scope of of your decision and i think that is to me that feels like the biggest decision most of the time there's the most variables in play there you have the most considerations to make and then once you have made that choice optimizing your sequencing can be hard uh, and it's certainly a place that can mistakes can be made, um, but it's more of an issue of bandwidth where you're just trying to think through a long sequence of things more than it's an issue of having a lot of different tactical considerations. One thing that I do love about Keyforge that sets it apart in some way, so I think it's important to mention here, is on layered on top of the house uh, system and also... Every card in your hand and every card in the board, on the board, at least creatures um, and cards while they're in your hand, has at least two choices that you can make with it on a given turn, depending on the board state. Because you can play cards or you can hold cards if you've called the house. So choose not to play the card or you can choose to discard the card. So if you don't want to play a card or you don't want to hold on to it, because it will clog up your hand, you can discard it. And when cards are on the board, you can uh, reap with them to gain amber or fight with them. So some, I think that there's a lot of potential decisions that you can make with all the different elements. 
I think that's a really good way to characterize kind of the feel of the decision space, which is after you've done the big choice, which is picking your house, then you look at all the cards you have in Mm. hand and in play. You have to make a choice. What do I do with this? And I think uh, there can be a lot to come into that. And at high levels of play, each of those choices is really meaningful and impactful. And there is a ton of small ways to separate yourself in those choices. But to, for a more casual or you know player, it really does a good job of refining those choices down into a small manageable piece, Definitely. which I think is why it feels so much. It feels smaller than it is, and we could argue about you know the ultimate like size of perfect understanding. But I think that kind of gives you an idea of of how it feels to make those choices. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the most important takeaway, if you haven't played Keyforge, is really just that it's a dynamic and exciting decision space where an important thing to remind you of is no one's making the decisions that you've made before. Uh, We've talked about some other game, talked about other games like that recently. What game was that that we talked about? Oh, Star Realms. How? Sorry, go for it. What were you gonna say, Jake? I was going to say, I was going to use the example of chess. We talk about mm. chess where by, you know, turn 9, 10, mm. most games of high level chess, you've reached a new state that no game of chess has ever been played like that before. In Keyforge, you are guaranteed turn one, you're yep. in turn zero, you're in a new game that has never been played before. It's pretty awesome. That conceit yeah. of a game made in that way is, is I really think, the beating heart of Keyforge. Well, let's talk a little bit about the primary thrust of the game, how to win, which is to forge three keys. Um, so in effect, that means Keyforge is fundamentally a little bit different than most dueling card games, which are a battle to, uh, well, let's just put it plainly, kill your opponent. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> In this one, you're you're instead racing to you know accrue three valuable resources, which are keys, and that does change the texture of the decision space in the game a little bit. Yeah, it's very interesting because I think in Richard Garfield, you can really see the thesis of I want to redo trading card games, and in doing so, he's like, I'm going to create a whole new template for what that looks like, and the fact that the goal becomes forging these keys, and to forge a key, you have to have. Uh, Generally, you have to have six amber at the start of your turn. The key cost can be affected by different things. You have to have enough amber to validate whatever your current key cost is. Your opponent might make your keys more expensive, or you might play cards that make them uh, cheaper. But in general, you have to have a pool. You have a pool of amber. You have to have enough amber at the start of your turn. If you have that amber, you get to forge a key. And it creates this interesting gate where, and this sort of call and response system within the game. And I think it makes Keyforge feel really different and gives room for uh, interesting risk-taking and creative plays that aren't necessarily represented in other games where you have a binary goal of, oh, I have to get Jake's health total life points to zero. That's not what Keyforge is like at all. Right. Yeah, I think that system... Are... Sorry, let me rephrase that. That system makes it a lot more tense than a normal battling game because there are so many more ways you can interact with what is essentially your opponent's life total Mm -hmm. right you can uh take pieces of their amber and 
store it on different cards to make it difficult to get back to delay. That's a mechanic called capture. Uh, you can straight up steal Amber out of their pool to put it into your pool. You can make them lose Amber. Um, you know, there are ways to make your opponent gain Amber in ways that could be valuable to you even. Uh, and so it's just, there are, it, it creates a space where there's a lot more ways to interact with it um, than in traditional games. And I think very frequently that leads to exciting uh, cinematic moments in the game. Yeah. And the design of Keyforge is not afraid at all to sort of play with uh, scale in a way that other games, I think, have to, are designed that make that difficult because of the keys forging at the start of your turn. And they're really being a gate on forging the keys. It doesn't matter if, say, on my turn, I go up to 30 amber um, because the keys are still going to. Co- cost six i i guess what i'm trying to get at is that really swingy effects in a game like magic can just finish the game on you on your turn but keyforge is founded on this idea of in general you always have a turn to respond to what i do on my turn before i can forge a key at the start of my turn and win the game yes keyforge listeners who players who are listening you're screaming but there's key cheats brendan and yeah there's ways that you can sort of in invert this system but in general the other real innovation of Keyforge is that I do things on my turn and you do things on your turn and you have one turn to respond to the actions on my turn before I get to forge a key. Right. That And that does make it more chess-like, I think, in some ways, right? And even to the extent that in Keyforge and the rules, once you're on six amber and you're able to forge a key on your next turn, you must declare check to your opponent yes. to let them know, which is a fun little rule. Um and and yeah, I think that might be one of the things that throws off other uh, CCG, TCG style players, which is that you can't do, there's no instance, there's no trap cards, there's no interruption at all on your opponent's turn. Uh, just like chess, you simply have to wait for them to finish making their move before you can respond on your turn. What do you think about that? I think that this is... Second only to the house system. Okay, third only to the house system and the randomly generated decks as being the most brilliant design decision in Keyforge. Um, Because I think adding instants or interrupts, allowing me to take actions on my opponent's turn, adds so much complexity to to these type of games that Keyforge really proves they don't need. It just streamlines the rules, it streamlines the play, and it makes it so much more approachable. I think it's way easier and it, it, it's also, it just feels good to sort of get that break as a player knowing, okay, now is my time to watch. I can set my cards down and see what you're doing and not worry about timing windows or anything. I, I think it's excellent. What do you think, Jay? I I think I'm kind of of two minds of it. I agree with what you're saying about the cleanness of the design that it allows. I, amazing plus in its favor is in Keyforge, there are no phases on your turn at all. It's You literally do whatever you want in any order and it's all fine. Compare that to Magic where you have, you know, nine phases and three sub phases in each phase. Uh, and, and all of that is to really is to facilitate the fact that there are instants and different windows in which you can play instants to interact with your opponent and make sure that you're doing it at the right time um, and so I, I do think there are, there are moments where instants allow for a lot more excitement, particularly when combo style mm. decks are involved. 
where in Keyforge, there are certainly powerful combos. And if you have it, you have it. There's nothing at all that can go wrong for you. Where in Magic, if you're the one on that combo deck, you know, you've got your combo in hand, you still are holding your breath to make sure your opponent doesn't have a way to interrupt and and mess that up uh, a little bit. So I think that is, there are drawbacks to that. Um, But, you know, it doesn't, playing the game, it doesn't feel like I, in most cases, it doesn't feel like that reduces the interaction. Like the interaction in this game is so incredibly high that I think overall you don't need to have that as well. I think that one interesting thing about this system too, and I'm going to speak a little bit more directly. So if you haven't played Keyforge before, a Kichi is a card that you play on your turn to forge a key out of turn. I think that forging a key off a Kichi doesn't feel feel doesn't feel as good as losing a game to the opponent forging a key out of turn feels bad. And that's a really big negative of the system. But I think a positive aspect is setting up your turn and making decisions based around what I think you have in your hand and then watching that come to fruition and then winning the game because of it can feel even better than losing a game because of a key cheat on my opponent's turn feels bad. And sometimes you can feel clever because you can say, oh, Jake's making all these choices because I know he has a key cheat. I just lost the game already. Now we have to play it out. So I think that there's real give and takes, but the emotional downside of like a lost game to a key charge can hurt. Do you agree key charge is a good card now? Yeah, that was one of my <laughs> notorious early in the game hot takes, which it was saying that key charge is a bad card, and it's kind of proved to be one of the most powerful cards in the whole game. <laughs> that said, my argument, I think, was well-reasoned, and I still contend to this day people are probably holding key charge in yep. too many situations. Definitely. Uh, so, shout out to uh, Jay Philippeg, one of the top players in the world. Uh, he, he messaged me recently when we were enjoying the Tabletop Royale stream on Twitch. Another shout out to some friends that... People are literally, I just pop in there like, hey, what's going on? Everybody's like, oh, Jake, how about key charge? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then Jay Philippeg's like, I actually learned a lot from that. And I'm like, there we go. Top player in the world. <laughs> Slam dunk. I feel validated. I I brought that up in part only in jest because I think it helps pivot into the other sort of nexus of really interesting decisions uh, in the game too, I Jake. Do, yeah, we'll pivot. But I do want to say one thing I really want to drive home is mm. that the game is not less skill intensive because you cannot interact with your opponent on their turn i think if anything uh it creates more richness a higher skill scene ceiling that really requires you to think ahead plan react at the right time as opposed to just having a counter spell they play something good and you're like okay i'll counter this um i think a lot of people who are especially people coming from magic and these other you know more complex games are turned off from Keyforge a lot because of this reason. It seems too simple. There aren't all these phases. Uh, and, and so it seems like it's something that has a lower skill ceiling because you don't have to master all these timing windows in the same way. You don't have to put that kind of study into it. But I would argue that is truly just a barrier of entry and not really a way to uh, to separate players in terms of skill in a meaningful way. So I, I just wanted, I just wanted to put that out there too. 
I think it frees you up also to think about uh, a lot of the emergent gameplay that comes out of the systems design in Keyforge that's so good. And it's sort of Richard Garfield saying, I don't want you to focus on that stuff. Like, focus on this stuff. You're going to have more fun and it's going to be really rewarding and interesting to play a game like that. Right. Yeah. It's just, it's something with player psychology. So the same, like, magic players always think like control decks are harder to play because somehow playing a card on your opponent turn, we just evaluate that as being something that's somehow more difficult than playing a card on your own turn. And it's not. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's, let's move on and talk a little bit about the house system. One of the most fantastic things about the game, as you've already explained, you can play any card you want without resources at any time, as long as it's in the house that you've called. Um, I love this. I think this system is just way superior to the resource systems that are so familiar in these games where you're slowly building up resources to do more and more things. It completely opens up your options and opportunities to create new and interesting strategies. You know, do you play the best card on your in your deck on turn one? Uh, that's something that you a question that does not arise in many other games. And one interesting thing about the decisions that you make around what house to call you is exactly what Jake just said. That's say, but also let's say your hand, right? You have three houses. There's 12 cards of each house in your deck. Your starting hand has three cards of a house uh, of, of house logos. I'm naming different houses in Keyforge. These are kind of like different colors and other in magic or different, um, character types in Hearthstone. I haven't played a lot of Hearthstone, but like you have three house logos, two house discs, and one house untamed. You're going second, so you draw six. You could start off with the three house logos, um, but maybe those three logos cards are, um, don't really work with the board state that you have and your two discards actually are really effective on board and really strong early. There's sometimes a decision there, but one thing that's important about Keyforge is you always draw up to six cards at the end of your turn. So by playing the three logos cards, you're already getting a little bit of advantage because you're going to draw three cards at the end of your turn instead of two. Um, so it creates lots of interesting decisions around, okay, do I play, I want to be getting card advantage. I want to be playing the most cards I can throughout the game, but I also want to be setting up really big and impactful turns. So you're constantly negotiating. Am I playing the most effective cards for the situation? And am I playing as efficiently as I possibly can? And one cool thing about Keyforge is because there's only 12 cards of each house in the game, the sort of probabilities of what cards I could draw are just beyond the cognitive horizon, but they are intuitive. And you just, the more you play, the more you get sort of a feel for what you should be doing based on your deck and the houses that you've played to set up really big, impactful turns in the future. And I think the fact that the game is designed around these sort of intuitive probabilities is really powerful. I completely agree with you. I think at its core, Keyforge because of the system becomes a game about drawing cards. Yep. Um, and of course, you know, you can't always play the most cards in your hand to draw the most in your opponent because you have to always be balancing it with the game state. But the person that manages that, those two uh, kind of crossing uh, tactical considerations best is likely to win the game. 
because they're just seeing more cards. And I love that. I've I've said many times before, and I will say many times again, I'm sure, there's nothing more fun in a card game than drawing cards. And this system makes Keyforge all about how can I play through my deck to draw the most cards? And, and I love that. It's, it's so good. And second only to drawing cards is getting to play cards. And because of Keyforge and the way that the house system works, Keyforge is a card game where you play a lot of cards. You Your deck at the end when you cycle through, you just shuffle it up and you go again. So it's a game where you're in the course of a game, you might play 40 cards, 50 cards, 60 cards. Um, you're, that's you're very fun. likely to see, you're very likely to go through your whole deck at least once yep. in all but the slowest decks and playing in in a slow matchup so it that's another that kind of brings us into this discussion of variance that we got into in when we talked about magic and is is a big consideration in a lot of these dueling card games because there is naturally going to be a lot of luck because the whole game in, in any of these games is built around uh, the random input of what cards you draw and when. The fact that in Keyforge, you're drawing through your deck so many more times, so much faster. Mm. Uh, you're able to play things with so fewer restrictions. I really believe that it is, of of the collectible card game, dueling card games I've played, the most determinative game that's out there, as in, the better player playing in Keyforge has a better chance of winning the game. Still not super high, you know, still probably in the low, mid to high 60s, something like that. Uh, but has a better chance of winning a match in Keyforge than the better player does in Magic, the better player does in Hearthstone, or any other game out there. Which, to really translate to the context of the podcast, I agree with Jake completely. And it, what Jake's saying is the decisions that you make in the game have even more impact on the outcome. And I think that that's really true. Um, and I think also that's assuming that the two decks are of equal strength also and equal matchup strength. Because one thing that's cool about Keyforge is because all of the decks are so different, uh, deck matchups really do matter in Keyforge. You can run into a deck that's just a really hard matchup for you. There might be cards that are really important and going to be really difficult for you to deal with, and you only have a few answers in your deck to deal with them. And I think that's another thing that increases the skill ceiling because you have to know, okay, normally this this key charge is not important for me to hold, or this this specific removal action that I have is not important for me to hold. But in this matchup, I have to. Because if their Lord Invidious hits the table and gets in the middle, it's just going to be game over. So the cost of holding this card and drawing fewer cards this turn and fewer cards every turn thereafter until I can call that house and use that card again, because it's always going to be reducing the amount of cards I'm drawing, the potential cards, can be highly impactful. I mean, absolutely. I think in that and in this conversation about how you cycle through your deck is you get to this element where I don't know how to put it into terms, even after playing this game for three years, but Keyforge really rewards putting in the hours and learning how to play one deck well in a way that I think, again, supersedes other, other games. Um, and 
And I think that's because A, each deck is unique. Uh, B, you're seeing the cards so many more times. C, you're you have to like learn that balance of how you cycle through it the most efficiently while still maximizing the value of the cards you do see that after you play a deck for 10, 15, 20 times up, up to a hundred times, um, things just start to click and you'll hear competitive Keyforge players say things like, you know, that was a great play. You know, that's like a 50, plays type of decision Mm, right you know you you have to encounter that circumstance 50 times in your deck before you realize i need to discard this card here or i need to you know pick a house that only i'm only able to get one card out of my hand because it's so important at this moment to get that on the table and that with the odds that i'm likely to draw into another card from one of the other houses in my hand put it just over the edge uh there's a lot that goes into this to the point where high what if i'm watching a game of keyforge between two extremely high level players uh who know their decks so well we we did commentary together at one of the tournament and we're just like constantly confounded like surely they'll use this house here to do this and then they do something different and it's yep. always the right decision and I think that just speaks volume to the skill ceiling in this game being incredibly high. And I just think that's something so many people miss. That's It's really a shame because the game is almost too simple that when you sit down and play it, especially if you're coming from one of these other games, uh, you'll have the same impression I did, which is that was some fun, but seemed kind of random. There's not much here. And that just couldn't be further from the truth, but it does take some investment to unlock that. Definitely. And I think a huge aspect of that that's so interesting about Keyforge's design that I think Richard Garfield is trying to get at is that it forces you to play with all sorts of cards. You might open a deck that's incredible and it has tons of cards that everyone agree is great and some cards that aren't as powerful on paper, but you have to use them. And I think that one cool thing about Keyforge is that the same cards can fulfill or uh, play different levels of importance in different decks. There's a card, two cards that come to mind just initially. There's a card called Lab Work, and this is a, a card from House Logos. It gives you an amber when you play it. Some cards give you amber just for playing them. Great. Those always feel good, and it lets you archive a card. There might be some decks where you're just using Lab Work to create added efficiency in your deck, right? You're just Every time I draw lab work and I'm going to call Logos, I'm going to play it. I'm going to archive one of my cards. I don't really care what. I'm just trying to draw more off of it. Maybe I care what a little bit, but not a ton. And there might be other decks where archiving specific cards with that lab work could be your whole strategy. You might be trying to bring a combo together and you know that sort of waiting to call Logos until you can get one of those targets in your hand to be able to then archive it instead of your combo later can really matter. And if you haven't played 50 games to know that it's really important that you put the specific combo piece in your archive, you might really struggle to win with that deck. Another card that's kind of similar is a card called Full Moon, and it's an untamed card. Um, and this is a card that says, whenever you play a creature for the remainder of their turn after you've played it, gain an amber. Um, so this is a card that incentivizes you getting lots of untamed creatures in your hand and then finding ways to play them. Some decks might have reliable ways to generate amber outside of that and not really care about setting a big Full Moon play up, where other decks might really rely on, okay, I have to build towards this untamed burst. And if I don't do that, I know I'm going to struggle to get Amber. So you really, through the course of play, are trying to get a sense for what 
how do these puzzle pieces fit together? And you might know from playing other decks, okay, this is how this piece generally works in, in decks. But in your deck, it might not be as important or it might be really important. And that's, for me, part of the fun of Keyforge is putting that puzzle together. Totally. And you, you asked me about my deck uh, Nimrod earlier, and I had a very similar experience with that one, which was uh, that it, it's just this deck with a ton of really good cards. And I was yeah. trying to play it straight up, like just use the cards as I would with other deck, uh, just use them efficiently, try and play through uh, my deck in, in a you know efficient fashion, just honest, straight up Keyforge. And one day I was playing online and I realized that that wasn't what the deck wanted to do at all. It was actually a deck that was a combo deck that had two different combos. It had uh, a combo in House Logos involving library access uh, and, and phase shift and wild wormhole to draw a ton of cards if I can queue those all up together. And it had a combo in Untamed with uh, Full Moon, which you just mentioned, uh, Dust Pixie, Nature's Call, and some other cards that could just generate a ton of Amber at once. And what I realized is if I can pull off both of those combos in a one game, I almost am definitely going to win because that's just going to be such a huge advantage. So I started playing like that. I started taking less efficient lines, holding more cards in my hand, uh, which actually meant I, I was going through my deck slower because I was saving these important combo pieces. And as soon as I made that shift, uh, this was in prep, prepping for that tournament. And as soon as I made that shift and how I was thinking about the deck, uh, I, I won like 15 games in a row on on uh, their online Keyforge, went to the tournament the next day, uh, went 5-0 and to secure my spot in top cut. And I was just like, you know, it was crazy. It was just like a total like epiphany moment to me uh, that kind of speaks a lot to how interesting uh, these decks can be and, and, and the thought you know that can, you can put into it and that a lot of times that thought and effort will be rewarded. Kind of an example of the Richard Garfield's delivery of that promise in some ways too of you made that realization and I think you went from an average player of Nimrod depending on whoever would pick it up to becoming the best player in the world of playing that deck just by making that realization of how to bring the synergies and the potential of the deck together. And it might sound like, oh, Jake was playing with this deck and it this is an, it's a really special deck because it's the one he was able to do so well to Vault Tour with. And that is true. But you can have really similar experiences with almost any Keyforge deck you buy. The scale and strength of that deck might be, might be less, but this sense of discovery really lives within almost every deck in Keyforge. And, and to me, that's what makes the game so special. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well... Let's see, we have next on the notes here to talk about the battle line and, and combat in the game. I don't know that there's too, too much here. Um, it's, I mean, one thing that's really important to note is the game is all about gaining amber, right? So each creature out on the table, you can use it to fight or you can use it to reap to gain one amber. So there is a really interesting tension in, in that decision a lot of times of do I sacrifice uh, moving ahead in the in the race that ultimately matters in order to you know disrupt my opponent or uh, take out one of their important creatures. So I think that is a skill testing moment. Uh, and and the big thing to highlight there is sort of just like uh, to be aware of what creatures matter in yeah. your deck and on the table uh, and being able to prioritize the right one. You also have to think about well, what house are they likely to call next? 
Uh, I don't want to necessarily leave them with three of the same creature out. So there, there is a lot of thought that goes into even these small decisions. And then the little wrinkle on top of this is that whenever you play a creature down uh, from your hand, you're gonna you have to play it to the left or rightmost spot on your battle line. You can never play a card to the middle unless a creature has a special ability called deploy, w- in which you can play it wherever you want into your battle line. But this creates this sort of push pull of okay. And getting to near your deck, some creatures have taunt, which means they have to be attacked first. They sort of protect their neighbors. So you get to do a lot of planning potentially with your battle line. And as you play a deck, you might have a sense for, okay, I need to put this really big taunt creature and leave it on one of my flanks so I can leave a spot for my my Witch of the Eye so she has a protector when she comes out. And then she can bring my combo pieces together. Um, And I think that the battle line is something that really can matter to specific decks or specific matchups in Keyforge. And I think it's mattered more in some sets than others. Um, but it's another really clever little design decision that that the order in which cards come out also are going to affect the match and how it plays out. And that can be interesting. Yeah, there's one more thing here, which is something I'm not as crazy about, which is that the way you put out your battle line really uh, depends a lot on cards in your mm. opponent's deck. So at the beginning of each game of Keyforge, uh, if you're playing live and in a tournament, you get two minutes to look at your opponent's deck list to see what cards they're bringing. If you're playing online, you kind of always have access to that information, which makes this a lot easier. Uh, but a lot of cards do specific battle line relevant effects so there's a card called positron bolt that does three damage to an outside creature and then two to the one next to it and then one to the one next to that so that can be a huge blowout if you uh, put your a three power creature next to a two power next to a one where you know you could format that a different way uh to keep one of your creatures alive or um and, and there are a lot of cards that affect that there's cards that are like shuffle the outside creatures back into the deck there's a uh, really interesting one in the in the new set called Infighting, where creatures all deal damage equal their power to the creature to their right. Um, so this is kind of a thing where it there is a lot of thought and decision that can go into playing out your battle line, but there's a huge barrier of entry to even getting to those decisions, which gets steeper and steeper as more sets come out of literally just knowing what effects are out there and what cards do. And unlike magic, where only a small portion of the cards released are really going to be relevant in competitive play. And you'll see the same ones over and over. So it's a lot easier in Keyforge, the best deck in the world could have one of the worst cards. And you know, that, that could become pivotal uh, in in a, in any given matchup. So you you really do. It does kind of ask for you to do a lot of study if you want to play at that highest level well said all right so we have some kind of interesting questions here to uh to finish up but let's jump in to a conversation kind of about the meta of the game um which is also a discussion about the different formats you can play do you have some initial thoughts here? Yeah, so I mean, Keyforge—it's—it's it's pretty tough to draft Keyforge. There's no uh, outside of 
there's no way to sort of pass cards around a table because you're opening a specific deck. There's some formats where you might be drafting specific decks, but formally there's really two primary ways in which competitive Keyforge has been played. And there's little wrinkles in these different versions, but there's Archon where you bring a deck to the tournament. Uh, generally, this is about bringing a powerful deck to the tournament. Sometimes there's Tournaments called Reversal, where you bring a weak deck and your opponent has to play it. Uh, and then there's also Sealed, where you're opening a, a deck or a pool of decks and picking one of those decks to then play in the tournament. And I think that both of these uh, test very different skills and skill sets and ask different things of the Keyforge player overall. Uh, yeah, definitely. And let's just get right into the turbulence here, because I think there is a little bit of turbulence in, in how these shake out. Uh, this is your captain speaking. We are now approaching a little bit of turbulence. Please return to your seats and buckle your safety belts. I think that for me, speaking as someone who's played the game for around three years now, one of the ways in which Richard Garfield's promise breaks down is that Archon has become one of the primary ways in which competitive Keyforge is played. Bring the most powerful deck you can get your hands on, period, and see how well you can do with it. And I think it's... When you're talking about decks at the very tippy, tippy, tippy top, it's it does start to feel a little bit more like an amusement park than it does a jungle. And for me, that promise starts to break down. That isn't completely true. And I'm not saying that I wouldn't be interested in trying to play in an Archon tournament again. But I think that it starts to feel like chasing... Uh, it starts to feel slightly close to net decking when you're chasing specific super powerful decks and combos that very few of exist in the world and you have to go online to find to be hyper competitive or get so lucky to crack one of them. Right. That's my turbulence. That's that's right. I mean, so there there are what are, are there now two million decks open or I know they're over a million. I think. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So over a million decks have been opened. So there's a lot of Keyforge decks out of the out in the wild, um, and that means there are quite a few decks that are one in a thousand in terms of power level, uh, and and they are that far on the side and on that side of the bell curve. And these decks are routinely bought and sold on the secondary market for three hundred, four hundred, five hundred, or more. More, yeah, um, and. If that is the case and that's what you need to succeed, then that makes little kid Jake sad because I wouldn't have had that kind of money. Uh, a lot of people will push back that you don't need to spend that type of money to be successful in an event. The The event I did well in, I used a deck that I bought on the secondary market for $25. Um, I think I was lucky to get at that price. I also think that deck wouldn't hold a candle to the decks that are doing well in online events these days. Uh, there are some other conditions that have popped up that I think make it even less likely today um, that somebody would do well with a, a deck like that in an event, which is that there are some uh, teams that have sort of uh, come together, uh, shared resources to really accumulate large pools of these super top decks so i do think that is a problem and i think it's not only a problem for the competitive play well let's be honest like paying 300 dollars for a top tier deck is still cheaper than yeah any magic format so it's not like th that's impossible to do and if, if you're really 
invested in Keyforge and want to do that, like that's great. You know, I'm I'm not anti-competitive teams like getting involved with Keyforge. I think that's wonderful for the life of the game. The issue I have with it, so my turbulence, a little bit more nuanced maybe, is that I think that really incredible one percent Keyforge decks versus other really incredible one percent Keyforge decks are just a lot less fun and interesting way to play the game than with two decks in the middle of the bell curve because those decks don't have bad cards they're so incredibly efficient that you'll like draw you can draw through your whole deck in three or four turns and it's just it's you know at that level it's a different game and a game that i think offers less interesting and fun decisions than you get at than you would get when you and your friend both crack a pack and just play with those I think that's very well put, Jake. And I don't want my turbulence. I've I've collected over 200 Keyforge decks, and I've spent an, an immense amount of my free time uh, searching the secondary market, buying decks that I think are really good deals that will be competitive uh, at high level or close to high level play. Um, decks that I think are interesting and fun. And I love Keyforge. That's been a really fun way to spend my time over the past two and a half, almost three years now. Um, But I agree that one thing, you know, in Richard Garfield's essay that we read, one of the things that he said is you don't necessarily know what you're going to get. Uh, What the, the designers don't necessarily know what's going to come out. And I think that that's true to some extent and not true in others. I, the designers of the game have said that they do do testing of what they think will be high level decks. And I think that shows, but you never will know the true combinations of cards that come out. And I think it amplifies so many of the good things about Keyforge, the playing tons of cards, how dynamic it can be, but it can also really be frustrating if you only have one answer and to, to a key problem that uh, your opponent's deck, a question that it asks, and you only have one answer to that question and you just can't find it, that can be really frustrating. Um, I would love to see more... One thing that's hard about the competitive environment is... Uh, if you're playing as a competitive player, you want to have agency over that experience. Going to a vault tour and entering into a, a sealed event where it can feel like whoever opens, whoever the best player is or the player from the group of the best players who opens the best deck is going to win. Uh, that can feel bad. That doesn't feel exciting. But the flip side is, is that sealed, if all of the decks are fairly equal in power level, can be incredibly skill testing because you have to be show that you can be the best with your deck the fastest. Um, and I think that one thing about Keyforge design that's great is a lot of the most powerful cards are the common cards. And I would love to see that amplified even more in the future. I think that's one of the coolest things about Call of the Archon is the most powerful cards in general were commons. That first set. I think that is... a few. I have a couple of things to say about that. So first, there are solutions to this problem, uh, as we've outlined with both formats, which is... Uh, Keyforge has an official variant called Adaptive, where you would play one game with your deck, then you'd switch games and play a game with your opponent's deck, and then in the third game, you would bid chains, uh, which is essentially uh, having you draw less cards at the beginning of the game uh, in order to whoever bids the more chains gets the deck that won both matches. The, the, the problem with that is three games of Keyforge takes a lot longer than three games of Magic. So you need like 90 plus minute rounds in a tournament for that to really be viable. And that just seems like too much for a lot of people. Uh, but that is out there. And, you know, if you, you want to try Keyforge and get two decks and they seem not balanced, like you can have a great time using that variant to play 
uh, with your friends. Um, and there have been online tournaments using that that have been successful and are probably more likely to uh, bring out the best player because it still rewards you for knowing it rewards everything, right? It rewards you for knowing everything about your deck and it rewards you for being good at playing a deck sight unseen uh, and evaluating decks. So that's really the whole suite of Keyforge skills together. The other way thing that solves this, and this is actually probably my favorite way to play Keyforge these days, is uh, you can play what is called a SAS limit game. And there is a website out there, third party, unaffiliated with uh, FFG, where you can plug in a deck and it'll give you a rating for how good they think that deck is. It's completely imperfect, but does at least a superficially good job of giving you kind of the power level range that's in. And I've had a great time just playing with friends just saying, okay, pick a number. Okay, we're going to pick decks that are less than 65 SAS. And and then you just pick a deck that you like that's interesting, but you wouldn't necessarily be able to play in a competitive event. And that's a super fun way to play and get more value out of a collection of decks that you're really only going to be considering two or three of for an Archon style event. Uh, if you're even interesting and interested in pursuing that kind of thing at all. So I do think that is cool as well. And I think if you have never played Keyforge before and you're listening to this conversation, know that you're listening to two competitive players who've played for almost three years. And we're we're sort of splitting hairs about like finding the most competitive way to to play the game that feels fair on a lot of different factors. But know that if any part of this conversation has been exciting to you, uh, you can buy a deck of Keyforge uh, used for like very little like you could get like 10 decks for 10 bucks uh used on the secondary market or you could just go out and buy two new decks for ten dollars each and you will have you could have so much fun playing in the system and exploring the decks that you get and they'll be roughly the same power level the better player at playing those decks will generally win and it's going to be such a good time i think that's one place where the design has really improved too is it feels like in the newer set the newest set dark tidings that just came out might be the best example of this yet where it feels like the bell curve of decks is a lot tighter Mm. Uh, in in the very first set there were extremely powerful decks and extreme clunkers (laughs) in there so i think like you know it's very plausible that many of the people who bought a couple decks at the beginning just got things that were so far out side of the bell curve one way or another that it you know felt like okay this game is just totally random these decks don't make sense at all whereas if you try again or try the first time with the newest set dark tidings i think the set that came before it mass mutations is also pretty good for this uh you're you're a lot more likely to have fun competitive games I just had a few friends over and we played, opened up a box of Dark Tidings and and played a bunch of random decks against each other. And all of my games felt fun and competitive uh, and and came down to play skill as opposed to uh, randomness of how good your deck is or not. Awesome. All right. Should we kind of close here with any sort of closing thoughts or or did you have a, a memory you wanted to share with us to wrap this thing up? Yeah, I think I think that's I would love to discuss does the promise of Keyforge hold up? If that's okay with you, Jake. Does yeah. does what Richard Garfield laid out in that essay remain true? And not in the like hair splitting 
two and a half years in competitive squeeze, but really the heart of the game and, and what Keyforge is and what it promised. Um, and does that, does what Richard Garfield described feel like the experience that you had with the game? I think my answer to this is a yes, but, (laughs) and I, I, you know, I don't want to split hairs here. I think the game is fantastic. I love the game. And I think if you're a board gamer listening to this podcast and you just want to get a starter set of the new set or buy a couple of decks, uh, have, have a couple on hand to, to play with your friend, you know, prior to the main event game of the evening, you show up a few, an hour early to play a couple games of Keyforge, then the answer is an unequivocal yes. The but comes in when it's uh, Richard Garfield speaking specifically about like wanting to play competitively with cards that are not good. And I just think that if you want to play this game competitively, then the, there are decks that are too good that sort of defeat this purpose. Um, and I think just what I've seen of competitive play the decks that are able to win don't feel like uh, decks where players are scraping and scrambling and thinking creatively to make the most out of things that aren't great. It feels like well-oiled machines that, you know, if you could have hand-selected a deck of cards out of any given set, that's pretty much what you would end up with. And... um so I think just the fact that those are out there, it, may, it means I, you know, I have to put that kind of caveat on there. I think that that's really fair. I think in some ways, though, what Richard Garfield... Uh, one thing that's really inspiring about Richard Garfield's design is he always swings for the fences. Uh, I think more board game designer... I, I don't think as many board game designers out there swing for the fences because it's hard to swing for the fences. Um, and it's hard to get someone to publish your, your attempt to swing for the fences. And I think Richard Garfield hit it out of the park, but I do think just like magic the gathering, when, when that came out, there's a lot of growing pains. No one had ever made a unique deck game before. What does that mean? What does that look like? What, what happens when you print 2 million copies of this and then put it in the wild, right? Like, and see how these pieces come together. And I think that the competitive players have pulled out their machetes and, and carefully found a, a carved out a space in the middle of the, of the jungle of Richard Garfield's jungle that feels a little bit more like an amusement park. Um, and I would love for Keyforge to live on for many, many years where the design team that's at the helm now uh, tries to do their best to disassemble a little bit and to say, no, go back out, go back out into the jungle uh, and explore and, and the cards that they design. I think one thing though, this is a little that will be tough is there is a a lasting evergreen promise from the sort of fantasy flight games team. They sort of said, Oh, all your decks are going to be good in competitive play forever. And I think that that promise has so much weight that it might eventually crush uh, either the community side of the game or the development side of the game. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out as time goes on. I mean, they've already all but indicated that they'll have, set rotations at future big events should those ever resume zoom yeah uh, we'll see so i mean you know i i feel like they're they'll walk that back as they need to <laughs> yeah that's fair uh, that's fair uh, but yeah i mean 
I don't want to come across as too negative here, right? This is a top five game for me. It's a game I've played and enjoyed for three years. That said, you know, we've played, I played in so much that like some of these criticisms are, are coming from like a place of like, you know, after 500 games of Keyforge, like this is something I'm like starting to notice. So these are not things that should put anyone off from giving this game a shot. And if I had one takeaway to give to the audience here, it's that Keyforge is the most skill intensive, highest skill ceiling, most determinative dueling card game that's out there. Uh, go, go forth and try it out. And don't, you know, if you're somebody who played it once you've coming from a background in magic gathering and you're like there's not enough here i've you know solved my deck in one play you're wrong yeah <laughs> and you know i don't want to not to put too fine a point on it but you, you know give it another chance um i think my additive takeaway to that is sometimes uh, there's no paths in the jungle and one of the best things about Keyforge is the system's design and the decision space that it creates. And it can be hard when you're a game player who spends a lot of your game playing time on paths because paths can be really fun ways to experience a game. Those controlled environments, designers can be sure that you're going to have a great time. Arnak comes to mind. Arnak is a perfect example. And it's using the same metaphor, which is so interesting. Um, But, or the same theme, but... Keyforge is a game where the decision space really is rewarding because you're always carving your own path through that decision space. And it's your decision space. You, If you love board games and you love modern games and you haven't played a game of Keyforge, the system's design alone, you're doing yourself a disservice. You should play the game and experience its creative, interesting, and smart decisions that create emergent consequences that all games should aspire to. Yeah, it's something... Every board gamer should have a Keyforge deck in their bag so we can all just have a quick, fun game of Keyforge before every board game meetup. All right. Well, that is a lot on Keyforge, the decisions therein, and philosophy of the game. I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's episode. As always, we are constantly hanging around in our Discord, uh, excited to discuss further and, and happy to teach the game and play. Uh, if, if you want to jump into the Keyforge uh, pool and swim with us there. Like Jake said with that, if you have questions about Keyforge, it's a pretty interesting game that might challenge your assumptions. Come talk to us. Ask us in our Discord. Uh, and as always, thank you to all of you who made it to the end of the path through our podcast jungle today. Bye, all You are now exiting the decision space. Thanks for listening. Please take care and enjoy the rest of your game. Mm-hmm.